Reading is one of the most important things you can do. It's how you learn, it's how you expand your world, and it's how you understand your world. Whether you're a parent, a business owner, or an individual contributor, reading shapes who you are. And today, I'm really lucky to have Dr. Danny Brazel with us. He's a highly sought-after speaker, trainer, and coach. He's the Jim Carrey of reading. He's spoken to over 3,000 audiences worldwide. He's authored 16 books, including his latest, Leadership Begins with Motivation, He's the co-founder of readinghabit.com, and we'll have it in the show notes as well, but freereadingtraining.com is something he's got out there for parents. I know our listeners range in age from mid-20s to mid-60s, so for those of you that are starting your families or having your children, we're going to talk a little bit about that, as well as books, of course, along the way. So, Danny, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Tim. I appreciate all that you do. It's it's a joy. You know, we were talking before we hit go a little bit of music and a little bit of books. So I've got to start with what's your favorite book ever? Oh, goodness. Gosh, people do that. It drives me nuts. That's like uh, when they say what's your least favorite book? I can take that one, too. What's that? What's your least favorite book? Anything assigned in school is my least favorite. I remember I was forced to read uh, that. And that's a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that. Uh, uh, I was forced to read The Scarlet Letter in high school. And in the book, uh, uh, Hester Prynne has to wear an A on her chest for committing adultery. And I kept on telling my teacher I wanted to wear a B on my chest because I was so bored reading that book. So uh, uh, I've always been a pill when it comes to reading. But I'll, I mean, I'll read anything. I'm a very eclectic reader. Um, uh, because of my online book club, I, I get sent about 5,000 books a year to review. And so uh, it's it's kind of funny. A lot of the stuff I read is based on whatever my audience is. So at one point, it was great. I I uh, had a lot of teenage African-American girls asking me for book recommendations. So I'm, I'm in first class uh, going to a corporate speech speaking engagement and I'm sitting there reading Sister Soldier next to this other businessman. And he's like, what's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> I once read a Vonnegut novel next to Carl Rove. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. well, I had a, I had a, a bizarro uh, experience once uh, from Los Angeles to New York, I sat next to Chris Matthews. And from New York to Los Angeles, I sat next to Ann Coulter. I was like, wow, this is crazy. <laughs> you got a mix there. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I kind of set it up on the intro, but we're going to take a little different path here. We're going to talk about the importance of reading. Right. And what, what I wanted, first question I want to ask is, does it matter what you read? Not at all. Not at all. This is actually one of the most important points I make to people, Tim, is it doesn't matter what you read. What matters is how much you read. It doesn't matter if you're reading James Joyce or James and the Giant Peach. People who read more read better. When I work with parents uh, who are always frightened because their little boy only wants to read Diary of a Wimpy Kid or Captain Underpants, I'm like, well, the little boy who only reads Captain Underpants is going to be a better reader than the little boy who's not reading anything. Captain Underpants is the gateway drug to Shakespeare. So uh, you just read anything. When I interview uh, CEOs, it always cracks me up. I'll be at some uh, big corporate training and I always ask the room, what, what was your favorite book growing up? And at least 70% of the executives in the room will say, Spider-Man, 
Batman, Fantastic Four, you know, comic books count. Uh, so, uh, so there's really not even a distinction even between fiction and nonfiction. The most important thing is to, to read a lot. And really, I, I actually always kind of tell students, I'm like, you know, you are what you read, so read good stuff. So only read things that are gonna serve you. That's why I tell people nowadays, you know, why are you reading the news? Does that help you? Does that make you feel better? Uh, if, it, I'm, unless you can do something about it, all it's going to do is going to put you in a bad mood. So why don't you read uh, the Bible or a Paul Harvey story, something uplifting? Yeah. It, yeah. The, I've, I've learned to avoid the news. I've gone to nonpartisan statistical outlets and that's it. Um, so we talk about that. I want to tell a story. So I went blue collar town, white collar father, and my mother was an avid reader, right? Uh -huh. So I show up in the sixth grade with a Stephen King novel and my oh, wow. teacher, my seventh, the seventh grade English teacher freaks out, right? Where did you get this? Da, 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 right. I got it from my mom. I'm, you know, I live in the middle of nowhere and I'm 12 years old. <laughs> Stephen, which Stephen King book was it? I think it was Pet Cemetery. Oh, good one. Yeah. So a few years later, my sister comes through. Same thing. <laughs> Flowers in the attic. Right. Same teacher loses her mind, calls my mother. And my mother's like, of course I know what she's reading. I gave it to her. Right. So I had the beauty of having parents that basically let me read anything. And a sister that went on actually to be an English lit major. So um, <laughs> good for your mom. I mean, you did better than me. I, I grew up hating reading, Tim, because my father was a librarian and I always I always hated the public library. It was always uh, always smelt bad in there. Uh, uh, the furniture was uncomfortable. There was always some elderly woman telling me to be quiet. And there's always some freaky guy hanging out by the shelves who thinks he's a vampire. Uh, like, uh, and it was actually, it was funny that you said that because it was my seventh grade reading teacher was a guy by the name of Will Hobbs, who uh, he wound up becoming one of the best-selling young adult authors in the world. Uh, but before that, he was a seventh grade reading teacher in Durango, Colorado. And he had 5,000 books in his classroom. And every day at the beginning of the class, he would tell us what he was reading, we would tell them what we were reading and the rest of the class we read. And whenever we finished a book, we'd go up to Mr. Hobbs. He put down the book he was reading. He looked through our book, asked us three or four questions. He'd give us a point. Any book up to 200 pages was worth one point. Every extra hundred pages was worth another, another point. You needed 25 points to get an A and the top five point totals had their names written on the board and I wanted my name written on that board. So uh, I grabbed a copy of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne, 500 page book, four That's point big book. book. Yeah, four point book, but it was also an excellent Disney film by J with James Mason and Kirk Douglas. I, I was 13, I didn't really feel like reading a 500 page book. So I, I went up to Mr. Hobbs, he asked me four questions and I learned a valuable lesson that day, Tim. Books aren't always like the movies. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here's what Mr. Hobbs did, which made me love reading. He gave me the four points. And I felt so guilty. I read every word of every page of every book from that point forward, went well above and beyond what I had to do, scored 44 points. And uh, I mean, he actually used one of the greatest strategies I've ever seen a teacher use to get a, get a kid interested in reading. He found out what I was interested in, which was football. And at least once a week, he'd come up to me with a book. He's like, hey, Danny, check out this John Elway biography. I think you'll like it. I mean, what are the odds of me opening up that book? 
in my experience, 100%, no matter what age. Now, the kid might not read the book, uh, but I find by the fourth time I give a kid a book, they're going to try and read that book because there's nothing more powerful than somebody important in your life, your mother, a teacher, a, a pastor, a, a, an older sibling, a buddy saying, you know, what? I was thinking of you when I was reading this. So I, I think that's I love that story. Your mom, uh, is she still with us, Tim? She she is. She still reads. And, uh, you know, you, the literally if I turn my virtual background on the only wall in my house without books on it is behind me. Oh, right. So thank, thank her for me. She's awesome. I love it. She's great. Yeah. So it was amazing. Didn't appreciate it when you're young, right? <laughs> but the beauty was in my house growing up, it was you could read whatever you wanted. And in my house with my kids, you could use whatever word you wanted as long as you could tell me what it meant and how to use it. Right. So I'm kind of the anti-censorship parent. <laughs> There's in nothing the wrong with it. I, yeah, I, generation. I, start, I started teaching because I spent a large part of my career teaching in the inner city. And I started off as a 12th grade history teacher. And I always loved teaching people history. Uh, the first thing I always teach people is history books are usually written by the winners. Every event in history has multiple points of view. I'm like, in this classroom, I'm going to teach you. I'm not going to teach you. Uh, what to think. I'm going to teach you how to think because all of us have this thing between our ears. And that's why I tell people nowadays, I'm like, there's no such thing as fake news. There's only people who depend on one news source. You need to uh, expand your reading, like you were saying, and, and go on beyond just like partisanship and look at maybe some nonpartisan publications. When I was a journalist, I used to have to watch like five or six uh, newscasts a night. I'd read 10 newspapers a day. And it's fascinating if you just, even if you just watch the evening news, which I don't do anymore because I want to smile. Uh, <laughs> but if you do watch the evening news, I would, I would recommend anybody watch, watch Fox, CNN, BBC, PBS, major networks, and just watch the first three stories because you'll be amazed how different the three leads are. And so, again, I, I, I've never thought that and a lot of these people, I mean, I used to be a journalist. I, I can honestly say most journalists don't have an agenda. They just do what they what they're told to do and everything. But there's things that, you know, you watch like I used to always joke ABC World News Tonight, which was uh, 30 minutes long, 29 and a half minutes was about the United States. And the other 30 seconds was about the rest of the world, excluding South America, Antarctica, and Australia. So, yes. you know, it's all point of view. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny you say that. So I've recently become friends with some folks that are career television journalists, right, wow. behind the scenes people. And a couple of years ago, a friend of mine who's a local producer said, you watch the narrative. So watch this channel and this channel. And it was exactly what you said. Yeah. what's the difference in perspective, yeah. if nothing else, right? Maybe it's not even a formal agenda, but it's perspective. Yeah. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. I, 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 th I think what's wrong is when a person just, you know, it's kind of less like, it's, it's the same as just listening to the random guy in the street corner who's just shouting all the time. If that's the only person you listen to, you create that perspective, but there's a lot of other world out there. You should listen to different points. You don't have to, I, I, I always tell people, I'm like, you don't necessarily have to agree with the point of view. I mean, when I'm teaching kids, I'm like, you know, we need to learn how to disagree with one another without being disagreeable to one another, which adults are failing at. And that's why I'm focused on kids nowadays. So let's go back to when you were teaching, because you said something that's really a university approach and you were doing it in a pretty tough part of L.A., right? Yeah. Compton, you were teaching just what the winners said. 
You were teaching to think and draw your own conclusions. Yeah. How challenging is that? I loved it. I absolutely. Uh, one of the reasons I became a, jur a journalist was because I'm curious and I always loved learning new things and teaching was the same thing as I got to learn things all the time. Uh, the UCLA basketball coach, John Wooden, once said something very wise. He said, it's the things you learn after you know it all that matter the most. And everything I thought I was going to do, I was going to be the great white hope in the inner city. And I found out I learned so much more from my kids and their parents and, and my colleagues than I could have ever given them. Uh, it was actually very humbling, Tim. You know, I, I had my first three years teaching, I didn't meet a single father. Um, my kids were very poor. There was very, very rough neighborhoods, a lot of violence. And I realized, shame on me. I grew up in a home where both of my parents were present. Um, you know, it's like, I grew up in the ward in June Cleaver. My parents are incredible people. Uh, my mom would wake me up. She used to be an actress. So she'd always, she'd, good morning, good morning. That's how I got I got up. Uh, nice. I always saw my parents reading in front of me. We had plenty of access to ma reading materials. Um, my, my parents were always interested asking us lots of questions. They didn't care what we did in life. They just wanted us always to, to try our, our best at whatever we did. And I saw so many of my students didn't have that kind of encouragement that I had had. And I'm like, gosh, that's, this is something I got to do something about. Um, I mean, I remember this is 30 years ago, 30 years ago when I was, I was teaching fifth grade and I had a, a, an African-American boy come up to me. He's like, Ms. Bissell, my mama says the reason they call it the White House is because you got to be white to live there. And I <laughs> wish I was teaching today because I could say, not anymore. Not anymore. Yeah. I mean, and that's what, um, but, but it, was, it was very humbling. That's actually my word for 2021. Uh, uh, Tim is uh, humility. Last last year, my word, it started off as vision, like everybody else. But after the pandemic hit, my word became grace because all of us are trying to figure out how to interact on Zoom and things like that. Uh, but I, I I try to always be more of a student than a teacher. And uh, that's, that's what teaching in the inner city taught me the most was uh, I have a, a lot of perspective I have to learn about. So you take that perspective and you're working with kids and getting kids to read now. Mm -hmm. Does it matter physical book versus ebook? Yeah, that's one of the first questions parents always ask me. My aunt, they'll say physical books or, or, or ebooks. My answer is yes. You know, uh, whatever works for that kid. You know, I'm a, I'm an old guy, you know, at this point, chop off my head, count the rings, uh, uh, I like physical books. My my wife, though, she loves her Kindle. And I, I always make arguments for why a Kindle is a great thing. I mean, uh, my wife is from Singapore. And so every other year, we usually fly back to Singapore. And while I'm packing 20 books in my luggage, she's packing yeah. a one pound, six ounce Kindle that has access to the entire library of the world. Uh, second of all, I like to read in bed and it drives my wife crazy because I have to have my lamp on while I'm reading in bed. Her Kindle illuminates itself, so it doesn't bother me. And then third, I'm getting on in years, and my vision isn't what it used to be. And some of these, especially fiction novels, uh, the, the font is so small where it's not a problem on a Kindle because you can adjust the font size. Right. So, you know, whatever works. Uh, it, it is interesting. There's really not a lot of research that's been conducted yet on the effects of electronics on the brain. I mean, they're finding some negative things, but there's nothing conclusive. 
but again, I, when, when I hear people say there's a literacy crisis, I had a, a fourth grader once, um, a teacher asked me to work with him for an hour. She's like, he's illiterate. And in one hour, Tim, the kid must have texted 20 people. He sent a couple of emails. He was surfing the net. I'm like, he's highly literate. You're using a definition from 80 years ago. You know, uh, I always see the statistics. I think in a single day, the average American kid is exposed to more print than, in, than the entire lifetime of somebody who grew up in the 18th century. So it's just different. Things are different. It's not necessarily bad or good. It's just different. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because I look at text language almost like I looked at Shakespeare. They've yeah. created their own vocabulary to fit the situation. Yeah. And I'm too old to get it. It's okay. <laughs> but Well, that's what it was cool. I was teaching in Watts and in Watts, uh, I was teaching middle school and um, they wanted me to teach these eighth grade boys Macbeth, you know, Macbeth's tough for anybody, but some kid in inner city Los Angeles doesn't really necessarily want to read Shakespeare. And so what I did, Tim, is uh, there's a great author from South Central named Walter Mosley. He's written all kinds of great books. And the first book I introduced to the guys was Always Outnumbered, Always Outgunned. And what I love about Walter Mosley is he, he really speaks using the, the vernacular, the, the language of, of people in that, in, in that area. And so I said, so you see how these guys talk? And they're like, yeah, I'm like, well, Shakespeare all, in Macbeth, it's just other gangs. They have their own slang. This is the way that they're talking. And then the guy's like, oh man, I thought, and I'm like, no, no, this is just, this, it's rival gangs. It's the exact same type of thing. And once you make a connection with that, that's where you get through to a kid. I mean, teaching is not that difficult. I mean, I think good teaching is very difficult, but teaching really isn't that difficult. I, I, I look at the American education system. I'm like, we're crazy in this country. We teach kids calculus, but we don't teach them how to balance a checkbook. I mean, I think Congress would have benefited if somebody taught them how to balance a checkbook. You know, and I'm not saying calculus is a bad thing, but, and then we put more emphasis on, on math and science than like theater and dance. Well, I mean, that's, that's a specific type of intelligence, everybody's a little bit different. I, I always ask my students, I'm like, what's more important, your arms or your legs? Yeah. The kids get stumped. I'm like, well, here's the answer. They're both important. And I'm like, just like everybody in this class is important. Now, some of you are really good in, in math and some of you are good at reading and some of you are good at science and none of us are good at everything. And that's why we have to work together. And it's those types of lessons. I, I, I miss that in the classroom working with, uh, you know, I've taught all age levels uh, but probably my, my, my favorite were the little ones because they don't know what they can't do yet. And they're just amazing. And they, have, they bring this enthusiasm to everything that they do. I mean, I probably lost 20 pounds a day working with kindergartners, but uh, I loved every minute of it. <laughs> you know, it's a, to that point, if you get people on what they're interested in, you relate it to them like you did with Macbeth, right? And with the local author, how much people will truly consuming it engaged. Yeah. Right. So parents today, how do you get the kid to read whatever diary of a wimpy kid, whatever's hot, by the way, I read every teen girl sci-fi romance for about eight years with my one daughter. Yeah. So I'm an expert on uh, starting about 10 years ago. That's you're a great dad for doing that. That's awesome. I appreciate that. You, you get looks on the plane. You talk about looks. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then you have to wear your princess outfit while you're reading them. Pinkalicious. Um, yep. 
Well, uh, f about five years ago, uh, what, one of the things that really drew me to you, Tim, is you're a big believer in coaching. And I, I always tell people that I don't care what you do in life. You need a coach. You know, Tiger Woods is the greatest golfer in the world. And the guy has four coaches. If he needs a coach, you need a coach yep. and uh, you need coaches for different things. So I've had business coaches. I've had marketing coaches. I've had speaking coaches. You know, uh, I, you need coaches. And um, one of the things that was really beneficial to me was, uh, I, I mean, it's an old book that everybody should, I, I believe it should be mandated in every school system. Uh, Thinking Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, I think is the Bible that everybody needs to read. And it's not just talking about uh, monetary wealth. It's talking about how to create a, a, a wealthier overall emotional wealth and physical health and, and those types of things. And one of the, the concepts, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was unique to his, and now everybody's run with it, was the, the concept of the mastermind. Yeah. And so I've been in lots of different masterminds uh, with different people. And about five years ago, I was in, in a mastermind and uh, uh, I met this guy, Nestor Santilla from Argentina. And uh, he hated the, the coach that I had. And he, he's the exact opposite of me. Uh, he's from Argentina. He's the great American success story. He came to America, didn't speak a word of English. And uh, over, the, over the next 40 years, he became a millionaire with a real estate empire. And, uh, but he's every other word's an F-bomb. And he, he's very hardcore. And he looked at me, he's like, I think your coach is full of crap, Danny, you know, but you, I like you, you and I will work together. Let's form a company. And so five years ago, we, we formed a company called the reading habit.com. And uh, what my mission is, is to teach kids to read more, read better and love reading. Because what I find in schools is most schools, contrary to public belief, do a decent job of teaching kids how to read. But the question I always have for people is, what good is it teaching a kid how to read if they never want to read? I teach kids why to read. And the reason I do that is I've never had to tell a kid, go watch TV. I've never had to tell a kid, go play a video game. And I've never had to tell a kid, go read a book. I want them to do it because they enjoy doing it. And so that's what I do uh, now. Really, our, our, our company is really focused in developing countries around the world in Africa, India, Pakistan, and Indonesia, as well as uh, Latin America. And I'm really basically showing parents basic tips every single day that can get their kid engaged in reading. And so just a couple, and so I, actually I want to make sure everybody in your audience gets a couple Please. of freebies for, for uh, giving me their time today. Uh, if you send everybody to freereadingtraining.com, freereadingtraining.com, I'm going to give everybody in your audience a complimentary copy of my book, Read, Lead and Succeed. That's a book, uh, I wrote it for a, a school principal who didn't know how to engage his faculty. So I said, okay, I'll write you a book. And so uh, every week I give you a concept, an inspirational quote, an inspirational story, a book recommendation on a book you should read, but you're probably too lazy because you're an adult. So I also give you a children's picture book that demonstrates the exact same concept. And that's, that's awesome. Funny. Yeah, it's fun. Now when I'm doing like corporate trainings now, I, there's nothing more gratifying than seeing a Fortune 500 company CEO start his meetings off with Dr. Seuss. I love it. Um, and then I'm also going to throw in a couple of digital trainings for, for the parents out there that show you some ways uh, to get your kids excited about reading. I'll give you a couple of real quick wins. Um, uh, I, I often will we'll do a training and a, a parent will say, oh, I have nothing to read at home. I'm like, oh, you do. You do. President Bush Sr., 30 years ago, signed a very important law in America that says every television set in America has to have closed captioning. So the quick tip I always give parents is turn on the closed captioning. 
And parents will say, well, wait a second. If the, if the subtitles are in English and the show is in English, what good does that do? I'm like, well, that's a fair point. Let me make a point though, Tim. Have you ever watched a show with subtitles and not looked at the subtitles? It's, it's not easy to do. Your brain is directed towards that text. Uh, and there's actual research behind this. If you look at reading scores around the world by country, the more kids in a country watch TV, what do you think happens to the reading scores? Do they go up or do they go down? They always go down in every country in the world except for one. The country with the highest reading scores in the world watches the most TV in the world. It's Finland. How can that be? Well, Finland makes really bad TV shows. And so they have to import Brady Bunch and Gilligan's Island from America. They put subtitles on the kids are reading all the time. And so that's a real quick win. Um, one other thing that I do with my, I have three kids and uh, my kids, I believe TV is here to stay. And I tell them you can watch TV anytime, but the price of admission is you have to bring me something to read. And so the kids will bring me, when they're little, they bring me picture books. Now they're older. So they're bringing me magazine articles or newspaper articles. We read that together and then they can watch TV all they want, but that's the price of admission. There's just a couple of quick little things. I mean, the thing that I'm always trying to do with parents, my program is designed for 67 consecutive days. Why 67? Well, a lot of people tell you it takes 21 days to change a habit. And to those people I say, show me the research on that doesn't exist. I actually know where the number comes from. There was a great book written in 1960 by Dr. Maxwell Maltz called Psycho-Cybernetics. Great book. And Dr. Maltz was a plastic surgeon. And in the preface of the book, he said he noticed that most of his plastic, plastic surgery patients took about 21 days to get used to their new faces. Well, a lot of self-help gurus, people that I respect, took that number and started telling people it takes 21 days to change a habit. But there's no research to support that. And I'll tell you why that's dangerous, Tim. Let's say you go on a diet for 21 days, you follow it religiously, but then on day 22, you fall off the wagon. Well, you blame yourself. Well, that's, that's ridiculous. So there was actual research done. I usually say Harvard did a study because it sounds much more legitimate if it comes from Harvard, but uh, it was actually University of London in 2009 did a study. Not a bad school, by the way. Not bad, it's all right, it's, in, it's, it's up there, you know. Uh, uh, not as good as Geneva College, but it's up there. Uh, uh, Harvard's <laughs> all right. Um, so University of London did a habit formation study, and they found it took anywhere from 18 to 254 days to change a habit, and the average was 66 days. Well, I don't like the number 66, so I threw in a bonus day. 67 days. And it depends on the type of habit that you're trying to change. So if you want to drink a glass of water before breakfast, that might take 18 days to form that habit. But if you want to quit smoking, that's going to take 254 days. And so this is so why I'm pointing out to people I'm like it takes three times as long as 21 days on average for a person to form a habit. And so what I'm trying to do is to get kids into the habit of reading, because if I can get them to do it every day subconsciously, that you have no idea the amount of words and vocabulary that they're increasing every single day. And then the other number I always emphasize to people is 20 minutes a day, because there was again, a study around the world of, uh, they were looking at what were the patterns in successful students? What, what types of habits did they have? And they found one that shocked them. So it was the number of minutes spent reading outside of school. So when they looked at the 20th percentile, the lowest students, they averaged less than a minute a day reading outside of school. That's not surprising. That's probably why the kids are at the bottom of the class. But then they looked at the 70th percentile, the middle of the class, the C students, 
they average 9.6 minutes a day. And so if I'm doing a live training with parents, this is when the first hand usually raises and the parents are like, wait a sec, are you saying if I can get my kid to read 10 minutes a day at, at, at home, I can take him from an F to a C? That's exactly what I'm saying. The research is actually pretty overwhelming on this. But the top students, this is even more overwhelming. The 90th percentile, the top students, how much time do they spend reading outside of school? Is it three hours a day? No. Is it one hour a day? No. It was just over 20 minutes a day. 20 minutes a day. And then I tell people two things you need to understand. First of all, they don't have to be consecutive. So if you have to do five minutes here, five minutes there, I mean, if, you, if it mm -hmm. takes you 10 minutes to go back and forth to school with your kid, you just took care of the 20 minutes there. If you put a book on tape on, because that's the second point is being read aloud to is just as good as reading it on your own. So when I did the research for the Read, Lead and Succeed book, uh, I interviewed Fortune 500 CEOs. Now, a lot of people don't know this, over half of the Fortune 500 CEOs are dyslexic. And that was fascinating. Doesn't surprise me. It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, and the way that they list, they listen. Uh, uh, dyslexics actually really do much better when they're listening to the text being read to them. And it's just as good. So there's a couple of tips, uh, some, some quick wins for everybody out there for you. Those are some nice quick wins. So let's talk about that kid that reads, whether it's the extra five minutes a day or the extra 20 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. Do they, is it like lifting weights? If you're a parent, you get your kid to start reading. Suddenly they're reading more lines per time period over time. Yeah. Is that, is that fair? You're yeah. building a muscle essentially. Absolutely. You know, you might not see it's that 1% every single day. You know, uh, I always tell people, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, it, the little things don't, don't mean a thing. They mean everything. It's the little things that have, I mean, that's where when I'm the doing devils in the details about habit formation. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, you, the reason you're successful is you've made it a habit of surrounding yourself with successful people, Tim. I mean, you do podcasts, so you get to learn about new people. I mean, you're going to masterminds, you're reading, you're listening to other podcasts, like uh, how I built this NPR is fantastic. I mean, when you surround yourself I mean, success is inevitable, but the same is true the opposite way. If you surround yourself with, uh, I mean, I always tell people, I'm like, you know, if you hang out with, uh, with kids with purple mohawks dressed in black who listen to the cure and think school stinks, you know. Uh, except for the last part. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you blossomed. I mean, that's the other thing is uh, I, I learned that as a teacher. I, I, I have parents that freak out because their first grader's not been admitted to Harvard yet. I'm like, just so you know, uh, on the application to Harvard, it doesn't ask when you learned how to read. You know, some kids blossom. I've had kindergartners that were the top of my class that by middle school were dealing drugs. And I've had kids that were in the back of the room sniffing glue and, and uh, picking their noses that graduate valedictorian. You know, uh, I always tell my students, you know, the windshield's a lot bigger than the rear view mirror. I mean, you should be trying to get better every single day, man. That's a great piece of advice. And that's, I think that's important for parents to hear too, right? Because so often my view is there's so much pressure on the kids today. Yeah. You know, let them learn to learn. Let, you know, let them learn what they love. And to your point earlier, it's okay to be a theater kid or to be the book nerd or to be the quarterback that secretly reads. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and if you look at most successful people, I mean, I could have kissed LeBron James before his uh, 
first NBA championship with the Miami Heat, they went into the Miami Heat locker room and they show a live photo of LeBron James reading the Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. I'm like, that photo just did more for literacy than anything I've done my entire life. I, I could have kissed him for that. I, it was fantastic. I mean, and that's what, I, I mean, I've actually taught, some of my best stories are, I've taught parents how to get their kids to be better readers and the parents don't know how to read. And it's amazing. By just showing the kids, you know, they'll read a story, but they're not actually reading the words. And all of a sudden, the kid, as they get better at reading, they start realizing mom and dad aren't actually reading the words. But yeah. it's, it's fascinating. I mean, it's, 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 all of us have to be surrounded by positive. I mean, again, it goes to you and I have the belief of have, surrounding yourself with positive coaches, positive mentors. And, uh, you know, we were both blessed with having parents that reading was was a point of emphasis. I mean, if you, if, if your point of emphasis, I mean, I used to have a nonprofit called Real Dads Read. And the first thing I would challenge the fathers with, I'm like, hey, dad, you want to know why your kids like football so much? It's because that's the only time you spend with them. Yep. I mean, if you spent your time reading with them, they'd be readers. You know, kids always look up to us. No matter, I mean, that's, I, I that's tell true. everybody, no matter what you are, you are always a parent and a teacher and a role model to everybody around you. What do you think of the little libraries that people pop up? Those Great are awesome. value there. Yeah, I think those are fantastic. Uh, anything that's anything that's uh, really just promoting literacy, and uh, I mean, it's little things like that. Uh, I, I I think those are fantastic, and what a great. What a great gesture. I mean, I've done lots of nonprofits. Uh, there's a great nonprofit called Reach Out and Read. And I believe it was um, created by a couple of pediatricians in Boston. And now you'll find like almost any pediatrician's office, you can find them in St. Louis. When the mom goes to the pediatrician's office, they'll actually give the mother's children's books. And there was a really cool study. Harvard did a study and it was fa fascinating. So the study was they had the fathers for, for I think it was, two or three months before their, their babies were born, they would read Dr. Seuss's Green Eggs and Ham to the womb of the mother. Well, then when all the babies were born, they had researchers read aloud five books to every baby and every newborn baby had a visual reaction to Green Eggs and Ham. No kidding. It was fascinating. amazing. Yeah, it was pretty cool. <laughs> so this is the point where I tell you I brought my oldest daughter home from the hospital to Frank Zappa music. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> That's my claim to fame. My, my mom dated uh, Frank Zappa. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a good claim to fame. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you talk about somebody. Th there's an example of somebody you didn't expect to be an intellectual. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. Like Gene Simmons is the same. Like some of these people, you're like, wow, how are these people? But again, as, as I get older, I've learned that unless you know everything about a person, you really don't know anything about a person. There, there is that public image. Yeah. Right. But right. to your point, LeBron, we're in a celebrity culture. Just mm -hmm. think if every Instagram influencer held up their favorite book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would be, that's where I look at the difference between when I do presentations here and when I do presentations in India, Tim, when I'm, when I'm speaking to students in America, uh, often this is what I see in the audience. And when I see, pre when I do presentations in India, this is what I see. Yeah. And when you, when you look at uh, the, the 20 most admired people in America and the 20 most admired people in India, in America, it's all like 
pop stars, musicians, actors, uh, and athletes, professional athletes. In India, it's all engineers, educators, and successful entrepreneurs. It's fascinating to me. <laughs> That's an amazing difference. And yeah. there's there's been studies that I don't know if they're Harvard, but there's yeah. been studies on right multi-generational families that have come in second and third generation in America. The kids have lost that drive that you saw right. in, in the native land. I've got a question that as you work abroad, how do you address, because there's different gender challenges within different cultures. How do you address that with reading and girls in particular? I'll give you uh, two examples. So one was interesting. It was in India. I spoke at a, a school of 5,000 girls and these two girls come up to me afterwards. They were both seniors. They're both so excited. Uh, one wanted to be a doctor. One wanted to be a lawyer. And I said, that's great. Are you going to go to university here in India? Or maybe you'll go to uh, Great Britain or maybe the United States? And I'm like, oh, we're girls. We can't leave India. I'm like, get back in that auditorium. I got them all back in the wow. auditorium. And I said, now is your moment, ladies. Within the next five years, India is going to become the largest country in the world in terms of population. I mean, you're a very young democracy, only a little bit over 70 years old, yet you've already elected a woman prime minister. America still hasn't elected a woman president. I'm like, right now, there are twice as many women in India as there are people in the United States. There's actually more women in India with a graduate degree than there are people in the United States. I'm like, you just made it my mission. Wow. Like each, each and every single one of you is gonna be successful, whether it's in politics and in industry or being a good parent. You know, whenever you feel down, you contact me. I get pumped up with stuff like that. I, I hate it whenever I hear somebody say can't. The other story was, uh, so I'm a, I'm a distinguished visiting professor at the American University of Cairo in Egypt. And so before the pandemic, I was in Egypt for a month and um, I was speaking to a lot of Islamic schools. And this was great, Tim, you know, because two o'clock in the afternoon, I had 400 parents show up to a presentation. I'm like, wow, that's unbelievable. And it was really interesting because all the, it was like the Muslim Brotherhood. You had all the guys with the long beards and all the women were in burqas. And then we were talking just like you and I are talking right now. And I'm like, shame on me. I, I made a lot of presumptions and I, I found that I fell in love with the Islamic schools because I, I had a way of talking to them. I said, uh, I was reading this book the other day. Have any of you ever read the Quran? And they all laugh. I'm like, oh, well, then you know the story when the archangel Gabriel appears to Muhammad in the cave. What's his first instruction to Muhammad? Because in Islam, the very first pillar of Islam is read. And so I told the parents, I'm like, so not only should we get our kids reading, it's actually written in your holiest text. It's your duty. And all of a sudden, everybody's like this. And I'm like, oh, gosh, this is like the greatest audience I've ever had. And so, but you got to be curious. That's what I love about travel. You get to learn about different cultures. I mean, there's things that I just assumed and they're totally wrong. And you go to these places and, uh, and that's, a, that's the greatest thing. I, I, I still tell people this today is, uh, you know, the United States is not Fox News or MSNBC. I mean, 90% of Americans are just sensible people that basically they want five things. They want good schools for their kids. They want a job. They want to be able to retire. They want the country safe and they want the potholes fixed. I mean, <laughs> this is a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> so I was in Slovakia once on business. Oh, cool. Great country. And I was in Kosice. So way up away from, you know, most everything beautiful little city and uh -huh. there was a 
the client I was meeting with had a very young female staff. And this one young woman was terrified. She had never met an American. Mm. Right. So the fact that an American was coming in, she was truly afraid. Huh? And so at the end of it, and her boss was a good guy. He said, look, she wants to ask you some questions. I'm like, okay, that's great. Um, whatever you want to know. How can I help you? And in her English was somewhat challenged. So she had a friend translate. She wanted to know where I was hiding my gun. Yeah. And where my hat and my boots were. Right. And then I had a buddy who was from England who didn't realize you don't hug women. You don't know there. It's like, oh, honey, it's okay. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, the perception sometimes people have is those extremes. But more often than not, people are in the middle. Yeah. Well, I was back in my youth when I used to travel every summer during my summer breaks as a teacher. I was in South America one summer. I was in Bolivia, which Bolivia was probably at the point at that point, probably the poorest country in all of uh, South America. And uh, I was with a couple of English guys because that's all English and Australians do is they just travel the world forever. Um, and so uh, these guys, they had been they had been to Serbia. They'd been to Iran. They'd been to Cambodia. We're in Bolivia. You know, and I said, of all of your experience, what's the most dangerous situation you ever felt yourself in? And they didn't even hesitate. Tim. they're like, well, one time we took a public bus in Los Angeles. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my gosh, that was that was humbling. That's why you should travel. You get to learn about the rest of the world. It's fascinating. <laughs> you know what? And I'm like, this will be my last question. And I'm having a blast. If you're an American and you want your children to have a global perspective, how do you find books that gives them that? Gosh, that's, in, man, that's a pretty deep question, Tim. I'm, I'm totally unprepared for that. Um, well, I mean, I, I'll just use my own parents as an example. They just exposed us to the world. I mean, <laughs> the reason I went to classical music concerts was because my father insisted we go to classical music concerts. Uh, you know, the reason, we traveled was because my family, we always, you know, my family didn't have that much money and we, we would just uh, load up the Honda and we drive around the national parks, which is America's greatest treasure. It's, I mean, for a hundred bucks, you have unlimited access to the greatest parks in the world. I encourage everybody to get the national park pass. Um, and so, uh, and then, you know what I also have to say, my grandpa, my, my, uh, my, my grandpa, uh, my mom's dad, uh, he went all around the world and uh, he'd come back and he'd always bring coins from the different countries he'd been in and pictures. And I just could listen to him all day long. And uh, so that's, I, I think any parent, uh, you should be encouraging. I mean, I've, if I was ever president of the United States, I would mandate when every American turned 18, I'd give him 10 grand to tour the rest of the world. Uh, and actually I'd love to, I'd love it if people would spend it uh, like a year in a country where they speak a language other than English, uh, where they practice a religion that might not be your religion. Um, Cause you learn so much that way. Uh, I, I've always felt, and I bet you, you feel the same way, Tim, is when you travel, there's two things that happen. First of all, you get a real interesting perspective from the rest of the world's point of view. Yeah. And second of all, you start to appreciate the things we take for granted in America. I mean, when I taught English, I used to teach English as a second language to engineering students at the University of Southern California. And I'd always ask my students, I'm like, what's the thing that impresses you the most about America? This is crazy, Tim. It was almost 90%. I, I taught this class for five years. 90%, they'd say, 
the fact that you can criticize your politicians without going to prison. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's like somebody like uh, Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel, they'd be in prison in most countries. And that's, that's really humble. I mean, there's so many things where like when I'm in India and realize that drinking water isn't like just some regular thing that cover hot water or yeah. an actual indoor plumbing. Uh, I mean, there's so many basic, or like uh, you go to a grocery store and there's 38 different types of coffee to choose from. And uh, you go to some countries and they're like, oh, coffee was last month. You know, mm-hmm. now we have rice. And you're like, there's, but coffee and rice aren't the same thing. Same thing. Yeah. We take them for granted. So well, I, I would say that to all of us out there is you really, you got to encourage a global perspective and, and the way you do that is expose kids to it. Yeah. And, and I think that's the greatest way and books are the second greatest way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. What didn't I ask you that I should have? Gosh, uh, man, you asked really good questions. And I don't, I don't know if there's anything that you haven't asked. Uh, I, I wish the pandemic was over because I'd love to just hang out, buy you a beer in St. Louis. I got some great friends in St. Louis. Um, but um, what I've been really working on with people is, is a lot of this is I, I tell people this too shall pass. You know, uh, you got to stay positive. You got to stay focused. Um, you know, um, there's a, there's a lot of negativity in the world right now. And I'm like, gosh, you know, maybe instead of uh, proudly talking about the importance of freedom, maybe we need to focus more on the importance of community and getting along again. Uh, life is too short. And, uh, you know, um, you know you'll, you'll hear everybody say that the Chinese word for crisis is two characters. One means, uh, one means chaos and the other one means opportunity. And while there's lots of chaotic things happening around the world right now, there's also all kinds of opportunities if you look for them. And, uh, uh, but I'm a person, I, I don't believe the class is half full or half empty. I think it's overflowing. And uh, there's all kinds of great things around us if you, if you focus on those things. Yeah, I've seen amazing things even in the pandemic, right? I've seen people's businesses grow like mad. I've yeah. seen people start things they never dreamt of. It, it, as much tragedy as there is, there'll be some good stories that come out of it too. Absolutely. Danny, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for everything, Tim. Uh, You're just great. And I I really appreciate this service. Uh, I hope that your audience understands the importance of things like this and in mentoring them and coaching them. And uh, uh, I would work for you in a second. (laughs) Well, we're going to help get the word out because I love what you do. Great. Thanks, Tim. God bless. You too.